0: a young mother who suffered a horrific attack at the hands of her estranged husband. The extent of domestic violence in Australia is shocking.
1: Crisis services are at a breaking point.
2: It was just a vicious attack to make her suffer.
1: Welcome to Motive and Method. I'm criminologist and forensic scientist Dr. Xanthi Mallet.
0: And I'm Tim watson Munro, a criminal psychologist with over 40 years' experience at the coalface.
1: In this show, we'll be deep diving into what really makes the offenders tick behind some of history's most notorious cases.
0: We'll be speaking to victim survivors of some of these crimes, investigators who were directly involved in cases.
1: And advocates for change who reveal the warning signs on what to look out for. At first, there was no you know, warning signs, but I then sort of started to just see little bits of cycles.
0: Motive and Method is a podcast focused on the facts, the motive behind the criminals.
1: The method behind why they do what they do.
0: And what we can do about it.
1: Today we're looking at coercive control, aren't we? We've picked this for our first one. Why do you think we've gone for this one first? Well,
0: it's in the broader uh, sort of umbrella of domestic violence and how coercive control in all its forms can ultimately lead to domestic violence and to tragedy. You know, it's a great tragedy in this country that one woman per week is murdered by a man they've been involved with or they've known uh, or they've separated from. It's almost at endemic proportions.
1: Yeah, and it's highly topical. I mean, it started a few years ago with the Me Too movement and I think the discussions around different types of violence against women really came to the fore and it's really grown since then. But certainly there still is, as you said, an endemic problem in Australia and, and in other places around the world. And one of the cases that I think really does exemplify this in basically the worst way is that of Hannah Clark. Hannah Clark was a 31 year old mother who was brutally murdered in February 2020 just outside of her parents' home, along with her three children aged six, four, and three years old. The perpetrator? Her estranged husband, Rowan Baxter. Australians react in shock after another horrific domestic violence incident. We all watched and read in horror as the details of the tragedy emerged, from reports of a car fire in Brisbane, to how many had died, to their names, and finally to the story behind it. On the morning of 19th of February, Hannah was doing a normal routine. She was leaving her parents' home in Camp Hill taking her children to school. As she was rolling down the driveway, Baxter basically ambushed her, forced his way into the car and he had fuel with him. He ordered Hannah to drive and proceeded to pour the fuel over her and throughout the vehicle's cabin. Now remember that the three children are also in the car at this point. She's panicking, she's screaming, and this got the attention of a worried neighbor who came out, witnessed the event, and started filming the situation. So there's actually footage of, of the last moments. Hannah only made it about 200 meters before she pulled into a driveway where a man was washing his car, and she started begging him to call the police for intervention. And then the car exploded. Hannah and Baxter's children all died in the fire, and only moments after the explosion, Baxter then stabbed himself with a knife and later died nearby. Hannah, she survived the fire itself. She made it to hospital, but she was severely burned and died shortly later that day. So what was the motive for this appallingly heinous act? Well, unfortunately, it's a common one. Hannah was in the process of attempting to flee her toxic relationship with Baxter. And we know, you know, looking at dozens and dozens, sadly, of these cases over the years, that that is one of the most dangerous times when people are leaving or have just left.
0: Well, that's about them losing control. Their whole modus is controlling the victim. They're treated as a chattel, a belonging. And when the victim, the survivor, uh, attempts to extract from that, it's a virile challenge to their sense of control, their coercive control that goes on. And you're quite right, that's the most dangerous time. That's when the red flags are really waving hard and loud.
1: And when we look at this case, I mean, it really is, you know, one of those, those typical ones that are founded on coercive control. Baxter was extremely controlling of Hannah. The greater the the victim tries to pull away in these relationships, then the perpetrator holds on even tighter and the grip gets stronger, if anything.
0: Well, it's a real challenge to their authority, but it's not as though it happens overnight. Generally, the coercive control can start very early on in a relationship, and that's something we'll look at in more detail as we speak.
1: And the more that the perpetrator seeks to control the victim, the more they try and pull away, and this situation obviously can become very dangerous.
0: Or they opt for learned helplessness and they can stay in a really toxic pathological relationship for years before the penny drops or they get the support to leave. And again, that's when the danger escalates.
1: That's just pure survival. Yes, it is. I think this is a particularly shocking case because we saw the very violent death of a woman and her children. And so this shocked the nation when it hit the news and certainly has seen significant changes as a result in domestic violence and the way it's policed in Queensland which is where this incident took place. And today we'll be speaking with a survivor, a woman called Helen Cummings, who's actually a dear friend of mine and and I've told you about Helen Tim already and and you're going to get to meet her today. She's An amazing woman who I've known for a number of years now. I originally met Helen through her contact with Kathleen Folbig, who she's a dear friend of. And um, when I started writing about Kathleen Folbig's case back in 2014, Helen contacted me on Kathleen's behalf. So we've been friends since then. We've developed a friendship, could not have more respect for anybody than Helen and what she's been through. So I'm very much looking forward to you meeting Helen and speaking to her about her experience surviving what was a very frightening and abusive relationship.
0: I've read her story. What a remarkable tale it is indeed.
2: I grew up in a normal, happy, loving family. I met a young medical student who was in his final year at Sydney University at the time. I was only about 18. I was going on a holiday. Our relationship kind of began by correspondence. We hadn't really had a date or anything like that, but we wrote to each other and I was um, kind of very thrilled that this very handsome, lovely man was interested in me. We started dating and um, we ended up getting married. I actually, I felt pregnant.
0: When did it start to turn for you then? When did you recognise that there were subtle signs of trying to control you and manage your life?
2: Well, I didn't even know that was a thing. Mm. That didn't even come into it back then,
1: but did you did you actually kind of um, consciously recognise that some of the behaviours had changed?
2: I, I consciously thought there's something not quite right here, but it's, it's I just thought that there was something terribly wrong with me that he was getting crossed or he was getting angry you know he, he got a knife out of the kitchen I mean, we were still living I hadn't been married long and I didn't think any more than that was just a, a one-off a silly thing in in the marriage in the very early party he was working very long hours at the Royal Newcastle Castle Hospital and he he'd get angry about the alarm going off so he smashed so many alarms so we'd go and buy another one
1: so you didn't you didn't see this expression of aggression and violence as a problem. You put it down to him being tired, him being overworked. Yes, and I just had to learn how
2: to manage it and do better and make life as easy as possible so that it it would get better.
0: To avoid the conflict and to avoid the anger. And I guess because it was the seventies, it was a cultural thing as well.
2: Oh look! There, even the word domestic violence wasn't that wasn't spoken of. Very few people got divorced. Myself and one other woman were the only people in my children's class who had got divorced. There were no refuges. There were, weren't any government systems. I worked in the family court back in the eighties. Women who applied for custody, not usually got it, and the men, the fathers, were given good access, and that was all thoughted out in the
1: court, and, it, and that worked really well. So, is this when you were actually experience your own toxic relationship? You were working in the family court simultaneous to that.
2: Oh, look, that has a, a lot to do with it because I was working at the family court when I would say to people, "Look, just apply for something. You know, if that, something was going wrong, and they were getting divorced, they needed to sort out." Children. I said, "The family court will sort it out for you. You know, they've got counselors; they'll work out a good arrangement."
0: did your husband ever have counseling did you ever did he go off and learn how to manage his anger or didn't he see what was going on he just thought his behavior was normal
2: oh he just laughed at it yes he did we did we went to a family court counselor with him myself and his his wife just to See if we could work out over the years. He did speak to people and he, he was seeing a psychologist and then a psychiatrist, but he told me he just told me in nonsense terms that he knew the game.
1: So, you actually left though, didn't you? You left the marriage with your children. Was there a moment that you decided you needed to leave? And if so, what do you remember what that was that really kind of brought it home to you that, that you had to get out?
2: Well, it was yeah, it happened just. Overnight, the one night, something kind of happened and it just clicked in in me that nothing was ever going to change and I had to leave. I'd have to leave him. I just went to bed and thought about how I'd do this. I couldn't have told him because he would have killed us. But, look, it built up. There were things happening. He was saying things. He had guns in the house. He had shotguns and rifles. You know, he'd make threats and he was hurting me and he began to hurt me in front of the children, which I found you know, towards the end, I thought, we either go or we're, oh, I'm, we're going to die. I'm going to die. Left him a really nice note. I said, look, I'm really sorry that it's come to this, but I don't want, I can't go on anymore. Nothing is going to change. I went home to, with the two children and lived with mum and dad in a little three-bedroom home where my grandmother lived as well. Sarah and Brendan and I had the one room with a double bunk and a single
0: bunk and a little weatherboard house. Did he try and find you? Did he try and stalk you and get you to come home?
2: Oh, he did. He I knew he would too. I mean, he knew where my parents lived. Looking back, I I think what was the most difficult thing was he knew in a way that he couldn't take me totally away from my mother and father.
1: So you obviously left with the children. You obviously survived this um, and you got out, which was incredibly brave. Um, But he got married again. He did. We got divorced and there had to be arrangements made, so I promised
2: the judge that I would, um, you know, help the children, you know, have a relationship with him. C-
0: can I ask you, did anybody beyond you and the children ever witness his violence?
2: Yeah, there, there was a situation in my parents' home. They'd been away overseas. He would to go to the movies. We lived in Gloucester and I said to him, oh, I don't think I don't think we should because Mum and Dad have just they're probably jet lagged and we really should head back home. Anyway, he took me into the bedroom and pushed me into a wardrobe, and my mother came in and she was very like she was kind of shocked because she hadn't seen that. But I I tried to diffuse it and I said it's all right. I think we're going to
1: go home. Blah blah blah. So what trick? Sorry, what triggered his his outbursts? Were there specific things? that you, you knew were going to set him off?
2: Oh, It was always worse at, uh, at Christmas and uh, birthdays, any celebration. So this was a celebration. A lot of the other family were there were my sisters and brothers and
1: they'd all come home because mum and dad had been on their first you know, overseas trip together. So you obviously left with the children. You su- obviously survived this um, and you got out, which was incredibly brave, um, but he got married again. And so what happened with the second marriage? You're hoping that this is going to be, you know, he's going to be happy, it's going to be different. Was it different? Well, no, it didn't take long
2: to, to see the cracks. And, uh, and you know, when you look back, um, he took a, a young 19 or 20-year-old nurse away from her culture, her homeland of Kiribati,
1: brought her back to Australia to a cold place. He isolated her then as well by taking her away from her culture, her friends, her family, same pattern of behaviour. A young, yeah, a young probably, um, you know, naive potentially, you know, looking at this handsome, charming doctor and now she's isolated in Australia away from everything that she knows. And I
2: don't think she ever realised the danger that she was in, the sort of that I had realised. I knew that Stuart was capable of killing us. I don't think that might have en-
0: entered her head. Well, she was idealistic, I guess, and separated from reference points like family and culture, yeah. living in a different place, and incredibly vulnerable to his moods and incredibly, I would imagine, motivated to not upset him because of, you know, uh, the behaviours that would accrue that if she did.
1: And they had a child, didn't they? They did. Um, And, you know, my
2: children went down there for for access visits. They always had the paternal grandmother with them, um, which was good because I I knew Stuart would always behave himself, but certain things happened. When an incident happened and I had to go and pick them up, I'd been on access with them and uh, Rack and Taste uh, said something. They were out in a boat and she said something that was just innocent and meaningless, but it it, it made Stuart lose his temper and... um, Anyway, that night when we managed to extricate Sarah and Brendan, it was a terrible, terrible trip to a to get them. But she rang me that night, put her on, and she said, I'm sorry, Helen, oh, I'm really sorry. sorry. I am so sorry. And I said to her, you have nothing to be sorry about, Brendan. You haven't done anything wrong, darling. They said, please don't. You don't have to apologise. I had some suggestions about why she phoned and said sorry, but none of them were right because looking back, I know now that Stuart was standing over her, demanding that she ring me and apologise to me for something that he did
1: that caused an incident when they were out, a violent incident. So he was blaming her and he wanted to make sure that she was taking responsibility to you.
0: How long after you'd divorced was that, do you recall?
2: Probably a few years Oh, that's why I always say, you know, in the family cot they said, oh, well, look, you know, don't don't talk about violence. That's in the past. The relationship, that's over now. You focus on the future, focus on the future. And I knew from my experience that there was a couple of times they were actually in danger when they went with their mother because he had guns in the booth and he took them out. And my daughter, Sarah, who was only about six or seven
1: at the time, she was terrified because she, she knew that they were in danger. So even as a child, she she understood the danger? Oh, she had to, yes.
0: It becomes systemic, you know.
1: We haven't actually finished the story. So, you know, it's, it's a difficult question, Helen, but obviously you mentioned at the beginning that this is, you know, a domestic violence relationship that ended in homicide. So if we kind of close off the story and then we can talk about, like, all of the other elements, you know, and, and how you recovered from this. Okay. I know, I know it's tough, but you know, this, is, this is where it can go when it's at its worst, isn't it?
2: Well, I, I knew that, that Rack and Taste was in trouble, but I didn't know how much at the time because Stuart was in a practice. There was another doctor there. It wasn't until I got the phone calls from the police at Mayfield to say that, that uh, my ex-husband, Dr Stuart Winter, was deceased. And I just said straight away, as Rack and Taste and Vanessa, are they okay? They were right, and my heart was beating. Mm. And I was just saying, Please, dear God. And he said, No, they're all deceased. And I knew, even though they didn't say anything, I knew what had happened. I knew that it killed them. And then he's, later on that day, when we went over to talk, you know, because I knew uh, Eve, their grandmother, was probably trying to deal with it all. It was her son. And the police were still there with her. And they said to my sister, we haven't told Helen anything about the circumstances of the death. How does she? How does she know what happened?
1: <laughs> Margaret said, "She knows. You know what happened because you feared it was going to happen to you and your children."
2: Yeah, but they hadn't told me there were guns involved. They hadn't, you know. Well,
1: there were a few people that said, "But look, it could have been a burglary. You know, someone could have got in and shot them all." So you knew in your heart that your your worst fear had, in essence, come true. He just perpetrated it on another family. Oh, yes. Yes. I knew that he'd killed them both and then killed himself. I did. With, with a shotgun
2: at, at close range, I, I still can't fathom. But you know what else struck me looking back? If, if you don't mind me going back to my book, I, the other doctor in the practice, Stuart phoned him and said, if you don't come around, you know, this is... This this could be irrevocable. And um, he, he came around and he gave Stuart some sedatives to calm down and he left him the pack, pack I think it was Sherapax, that when their bodies were found there was an empty packet. Now, I didn't think about this and they found uh, the drugs in his okay. system in the autopsy. Stuart had the mind enough to not overdose, but dose enough for himself to be able to do what he did.
1: So this was premeditated then. He plan- He calmed himself down enough to murder his family. He was planning it because he told the doctor that, that Rack and Taste gets like this every month. She's got a
2: menstrual madness. It's in, It's all in the report of the autopsy and the coronial inquest. I've got all the notes. He said she has a, a menstrual madness and, and he said, but it's worse this time. And he had cuts on his hand and uh, he said that she'd cut up a, a rubber mattress with some scissors, and he tried to wrestle them from her. Now I, I go back and I know that story's not true. I think that she probably got away from being killed in that moment. She got out,
1: tried to defence injuries. He had he had defence injuries. She was trying to protect herself, and he's he's been cut. And she they'd taken the little girl
2: over to the do- other doctor's house, work, and we looking but reckon went and picked her up, and then took her into the marketplace that she had nowhere to go. But Stuart was planning this all along. That's why I'm trying to say he, he actually, he drugged himself up to the extent that I don't know whether he felt any pain or remorse or guilt or shame or or to stop him, what he was about to do. He knew what he, what he was about to do. He, he knew he was going to kill them and kill himself, but... He'd already created the story for the doctor and the and the policeman. We knew the family; it was a small town, so that, that they could stay. He had a moment of madness, and it was a tragedy. And the three of them were victims because this came up time and time. It was all all wrong, and it was part of the reason why I knew I had to write my story.
0: So, a whole narrative around it too exculpate himself post-death. What do you think made him tick? I mean, you were married to him. You knew him as a student. Was it something in his family history? Was he just intrinsically bad or you never quite figured it out?
2: Well, I have since spoken with people. In fact, I've recently connected with a lovely, lovely man on Facebook and it just came up because Stuart had burnt his draft card in the 70s and there was a picture of him in the Sydney Morning Herald. And they were all talking about that and talking about other things, and and I just happened to say look, my my ex husband also burned his draft card. And this man came in. He said, "I know Helen. I was with him that day." So anyway, I've got to know, and I've I've uh, I've met him in Sydney, and he, he lived with Stuart. And he said there were there were incidences where, where Stuart uh, uh, trashed trashed the the flat, but he had. He had other friends who wanted to see him graduate. They didn't want to see him destroy his his career, his his future, what lay ahead. And so it wasn't so much this man that I have got to know. It was somebody else I have since learned that um, could have possibly told me or warned me, or said there is a side of Stuart that you don't know. It's quite quite violent.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And we were just talking about that, about significant others, that whether they should intervene, what's the danger, why don't they tell people what they're walking into, eyes wide shut, I must say. Um, That's very interesting. So he, he had... Demonstrated poor anger management, poor impulse control, rages when he was a student, but they, somebody or some people nurtured him through his medical degree.
2: Yes, possibly not not realising the danger of that and that one day he might kill somebody. Yes, so I don't, I don't. I'm not, I'm not uh, blaming them. But there was an also an incident when I was away, when we were corresponding. I was in New Zealand, and, and I found this out through his mother and. Uh, do it assaulted his father who was a very elderly man and knocked him to the ground
1: so there's a general trend then and i wonder i guess whether some of these things you've learned subsequently can assist you in helping to understand what happened and i mean you blamed yourself in in those early days what am i doing wrong why am i causing these rages can you see now with hindsight and all of this extra information has that Change the way you feel about your your position in this?
2: I, I see it in a different line and I look back on it. I've had to actually apologise to people when I've, I don't do a lot of public speaking anymore, but the last few events that I've been to, I've actually said, and it was great sorrow and despair in my heart, that I haven't, or we haven't, none of us have been able
1: to change anything because still one one woman a week. I know. We've talked about that a lot actually over the last, Tim and I have kind of done a um, a part one to this where we've talked about basically the uh, our professional side of this, the cases we've seen. But this is what it comes down to, one a week. And we're seeing more discussion in the media and politicians. But this is what we wanted to get to, like, how do we change those statistics? And I think the lived experience that you're sharing is really powerful because we can talk from an academic professional perspective, but when you hear the real stories and the fact that your story happened in the 70s, but we're still seeing cases like this now. You know, Hannah Clark was very recently, and it still resonates because the same thing is still happening. One of the, like the, the,
2: the biggest red slave, I think, is the isolation thing and reading my book and realizing, you know, he couldn't isolate me because I had this. In the end, he couldn't because I had this family to return to. But um, Rack and Taste, you know they're buried together in the same grave, don't you?
1: Oh, no. Because
2: there was nobody there to say, why should a person who's been murdered by somebody maliciously, it was in the, it's in the re- report.
0: Buried with them.
2: Be buried. Them. They're all buried together. Or, I've been to the cemetery possibly three times in the 40 years, years 30 years. And um, Stuart's brother, Michael, who was a solicitor at the time, shared a lot of Rackentace's belongings and, her, you know, very important things back over to the island. And they were all returned to Australia, Return. returned to sender. Because in their, in their belief... That was,
1: you know, what happened in a marriage had something to do with the bonds and it was private. Oh, so this is a really important cultural discussion we're having oh, here. So, yes. And Stuart would have known that. Stuart would have known how 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 isolated was she. She uh, couldn't return to her family because they would have felt she st- she sticks with that marriage no matter what.
0: But even in death, he's controlling her in his mind, we'll all be buried together. It's just extraordinary, isn't it?
1: That level of control and oh, coercion is just extreme. And, and you can understand why I knew I had have to, have to tell her story. That's why I've dedicated my book to
2: her, uh, to Rackham and Vanessa because I thought if I don't, they'll always be, it'll always be thought of as a beautiful doctor who was a wonderful family man
1: and loved them, and had a breaking point. He snapped. So you you wrote your book to give her a voice, and give her her story back, and stopped it becoming all about him because that's what he wanted. It was all about him, but I had to also, within the meantime, consider
2: I had children of that marriage, you know? and this is another whole. Like it just could be another whole podcast. That well, how was it yeah. going to affect them? They had this legacy. I didn't want them to have resentment or. Anger or deep sadness, you know, but there was a legacy for them because I divorced him. I that was over, but for all forever, he was their father, and he murdered, he murdered the their stepsister. Nobody's nobody's done any, nobody's ever done any research on the effects of children of marriages where where their, a parent has murdered, you know, when the first family survived. I, I think someone. It would be good for someone to do a thesis a PhD the on it. So
1: obviously, um, you wrote the book. That was something positive you wanted to do. Um, For for the other victims. And you're also obviously an activist in the community. You've obviously had a very strong sense of social justice. You were working in the family court. This is just inherently who you are. And I've known you for years now. And so that's something that we've obviously bonded over, you know, that sense of social justice and giving the victims a voice, etc. So you're an activist and you have links to your community now. You've spoken to my students. So you are giving the victims a voice still. And can you see any other positive impacts from your book? Because this is a very dark subject, but, you know, there are ways that we can we can educate, we can reach people.
0: And agitate.
1: And agitate.
0: Because I think there's – look, there's a growing awareness. We've discussed it, and your book obviously is part of that process, but I, I still think subject to what you think, Helen, there's so much more to be done politically – That, uh, you know, they're starting to bring in laws that make this uh, a more serious crime, people being incarcerated and so on. But what I'm hearing from your story is that um, because of the times, the culture, the way that women were perhaps in the 70s, none of this was open or declared. And then you're separated. He didn't succeed in isolating you. But certainly, as a general proposition, that's part of the modus operandi, where they try and separate their partners because they can control them, and I guess hand in glove with that, there can be no intervention from significant others because they're miles away, they're a country away, and so on.
2: I feel for the young mothers and the girls today because they have got the strength to leave, but they're being... Killed. A lot of them are being killed because they're leaving. And I know from my work within the court, this was all about there were some men that I uh, were never going to be told by a court or anybody an order to be made about their behaviour, about who they were. They were never going to be happy till the status quo goes back to uh, like women are a second, they're they're not equal, they're, they're second class to them and um, and their property.
0: Could I just, what do you think about early intervention? I mean, we've been talking about this at quite some depth in the last day or so. My view is that there should be more education in schools. Young children need to learn how to communicate. They need to learn how to control their impulses. They need, how, they need to learn how to respect other girls and women uh, at an early age. What do you think about that?
2: No, I think it's one of the most important things, definitely, Tim. Um, and I think that's happening to a degree. Uh, respectful relationships, yes. Um, because a lot of other, you know, I mean, you can't legislate for goodwill, which is what they tried to do. They changed the legislation so many times, called it contact instead of access and residence instead of custody. You know, I could see it. it's not going to make any difference. Um, we, we've we've got to we've still got to protect them and. Provide housing for people who need to escape because it's not everybody. There are just certain men who are not going to accept it. the The world has changed. Girls have changed. They're not going to be told anymore how to think, how to feel, how to react, what to wear, how to speak. You know that's over. But
1: there are there are men out there who cannot accept that. So, as as somebody who survived this, so do you think? I mean, Tim and I have been talking about this as a um, kind of top-up-and-down approach. So we've got... We do need the education at grassroots, and we do need people with lived experience to share so that, you know... it Because it contextualizes it. It makes it real for people. You know, you could have been a statistic, but you escaped, you know? And so it's got to be done at that grassroots level. Let's, you know, talk to the girls and the boys and change these dynamics from the bottom up, but also... Do you think it's it's also about reaching the politicians? Like we have to be tough on this. You know we are changing the legislation to make coercive control a crime across Australia now. So is that is that what you think? Because there's no one no one answer, is there? No, no, because it's too complex. There's it, you know you don't do one thing and then it's all going to
2: stop. There's so many things, but yeah, respectful relationships, early education. Um, working with men, working with men who, like, unless the man admits or or, or takes on to say, I'm, i I need help. What I'm doing is wrong. I'm hurting somebody. Help me, somebody." You know. No, in fact, just uh, the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist told me that, uh, you know, I had to break the news to him that they were all dead, yeah. and he, of course, he'd been helping Sarah, Brendan, and I, and he just. He just went white and put his head because he knew it was like what could have been asked. He just, uh, like, and uh, I said, what could, what, what help could it Stuart have had? Doctor, I won't mention his name, he's retired longer. He said, Helen, if he'd had, he was willing to accept he had some problems and
1: worked intensely with someone over a long period, a period of time, maybe, so, do you think the only answer for Stuart then, if and for other people perpetrators who will not accept responsibility, um, do you think the only answer then is incarceration? Is that the only way to protect other people?
2: Look, at times, yes. If 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 if, if um, domestic violence orders are broken, is you know if if there are contraventions where someone is deliberately not taking any notice, and that's a last resort. As I said, like Stewart, I think Stuart had really serious mental problems as well as the need
0: to control. But he wasn't crazy, right? He, he wasn't insane. He knew what he was doing. He planned what he did. And it, it sounds to me as though he was extraordinarily manipulative, playing on his status as a doctor, Gaming the system in many ways, certainly disturbed with personality issues, but not insane as we would describe it, yeah?
2: And and they're all different. What I read about what other men have done after they've cured their families and that, yeah, okay, it's similar, but they've done, you know, there's something else.
1: Oh, it's, I'm tired of hearing about it. Like I'm tired of, I, I don't want another thing.
2: person to die and I
1: can't. And I think you've touched on a really important message there too. It's like that with a lot of the offenders, there is um, a profile. The behaviour is like that. You've been mentioning everything that happened to you is exactly what Tim and I have been talking about over the last day. The the control, um, the coercion, the charm, the manipulation, um, isolation being you know really important. These are all things that we've talked about. But with when it comes to the victim survivors. There is no profile because this can happen to anybody. I mean, you're one of the strongest women that I know.
0: Absolutely. If this can
1: happen to you, this can literally happen to anybody. And so it is, it is about the perpetrator. It's not about the victim survivor. It's not about them being weak or anything inherent to their personality You know, it is is all about him and that's where we have to start. We have to change the behaviour with the boys and the men and that is the only way we will tackle violence against women and children.
0: But I think too, and it's not a cop-out, there needs to be greater resources to protect women. Um, If you run, you need to be able to be safe in doing so. And certainly I'm a criminal psychologist so I see a lot of these people and – they will hunt them down. And if they're not protected, they may get away, but they'll find them or they will get to them through finding the kids and killing them. And there's been examples of this as well. So uh, there needs to be more money and awareness at a political level and resolve to do that. We spoke uh, about the cost benefits of this. I mean, politicians don't like to spend money on things that don't win votes, but there's a huge cost benefit to the community if we can nip this in the bud, prevent it, and save lives. I mean, one woman a week, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. I know you deal with you know, homicide, but before it gets to homicide, there's often a pattern of domestic violence, which you've so eloquently described in terms of your own situation.
1: And how many people are kind of suffering in secret, in quiet, trying to deal with it the same way you did, trying to appease them, trying to keep them calm and not trigger them? And it's that that we need to change because, yes, yeah, some of those end in homicide, but for all the, those who don't, they're still in a traumatic, toxic relationship. And to give
2: them hope, I want to, I want to just, you know, finish on this note of um, I wasn't always strong, Santhe. Uh, I i am strong now, but it's taken, you know, 30, 40 years to, to be the person I am today and I live a perfect life, life I'm really happy. And I want those women who are, you know, in this situation to think there isn't any way out or that they, they can't leave. Perhaps there is a way out and you will get better. There is hope.
0: What is that? What is the way out? I mean, if you'd left when you were a student or he was a student, do you think he would have just moved on to someone else? What advice would you give to women in this situation if you can?
2: If 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 the red flags have already been raised, uh, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing in, in your power that you can do to help this person. They have to help themselves. So uh, stop trying um, and take care of yourself. Uh, Get some help. Ring up uh, Vocal. Uh, Got your back sister. There's all sorts of organisations and there's lots of telephone numbers that will put them onto a um, a refuge, you know, or a safe house somewhere. There's lots of safe houses. But please don't stay because, you know, I don't want another statistic.
1: I think that's really powerful and I'm, I'm glad you wanted to end on a message of hope because you're right. I think people in these situations can feel hopeless and that there is no way out, there is no hope available and help available and they have to stay. And and that's that's not right and, you know, they can be helped, they can get out and they can ultimately be happy. You're saying you're living your best life. Look to that. Look to your best life and what's next after you've left this and toxic. And it's
0: empowering to do that. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. It's been fabulous. Hard for you, but I'm sure everyone listening to this would be incredibly grateful. Yeah, and thanks
1: thanks for taking us on your journey because I wanted you to come on because you did have such a huge impact on my students. You know, it really resonated. There are a lot of young women studying criminology and a lot of psychology students. And I think if we can, you know, help those young women know... You know that there is if they ever end up in your situation there is a way out i think that's really powerful so thank you so much for for your time as tim said because i think your story is is really important and we need to keep talking
2: i trusted that you had faith in me to do it to have something come to contribute so thank you uh, xanthi and thank you tim
1: Well, in essence, that just kind of solidified everything we've been talking about, didn't it? It's like all of the core themes, you know, it, that was all in Helen's story.
0: All the KPIs, if I could use that term, the coercive control, the cultural issues, uh, the thing in the 70s about women not speaking up, doing as they're told.
1: And that women have changed.
0: Well, I loved that. And I loved her message of hope as well. But also the isolation uh, her former late husband uh, attempted to isolate her, and then in the second marriage, he did much more. He took his new wife away from her country of origin, away from her culture, away from her family. The other thing that struck me about coercive control, even from the grave, he had his second wife and children buried with him. That made my blood run cold. Me I don't too. Know about you. I
1: didn't actually know that, and I think that was that was one of the the things that I i can't believe that and you know i'm not a believer in kind of life after death or anything like that but the thought of that woman and that child being buried with that man just is so abhorrent to me because he planned it and uh, you know we had all of the core things didn't we interesting that helen thought that that isolation was really important he tried to isolate her he couldn't he learned from that and did a better job with his second family and now he's even isolated his his victim in death
0: but, but also the prodromal signs, the red flags as they are. Um, even as a student, he was violent and he was coercive. And there was a lot in there about how others didn't notify her. She said they could have warned me. They didn't. And I think that's a common thing out there in the community that people, for one reason or other, they're either too frightened to say anything or they kind of minimalise it. They don't want to lose the friendship. There's all these dynamics at play. And of course, in her case, nobody warned her. She went on and married him and then the rest is history, a very sad history at that.
1: It is. And I think that, you know, it just really highlighted to me how, you know, when it's at its worst, it's most serious what the outcomes can be. And so why we need change because people are dying.
0: Absolutely. And she's a big advocate for change. Um, her book went some of the way. Uh, she's still very engrossed in all of this. And of course, you know, decades later, the grief and the stress that's still apparent for her, you know, clearly triggered some very bad memories.
1: Yeah. And I'm really appreciative she took the time to talk to us, but I think it's important with pe- for people with lived experience to speak because ultimately, Helen sharing her story and you know, the other victims' stories ultimately um, will resonate with an audience, with our listeners in a way that I I don't think we can without that experience.
0: Well, look, it's all theory. I guess in my case, I've examined a lot of these people over the years, both the offenders and the survivors, the victims. But I don't think there's anything as compelling as a raw account from a survivor Who's lived it themselves because they have the insights to it they can speak to it with great authority as she did
1: yeah yeah i really think she was incredibly powerful and i think we're very privileged to have, have heard her story
0: i agree thank you helen Thank you so much for listening to Motive and Method.
1: That's all we have time for today. If you want to learn more about domestic violence and coercive control, then be sure to tune in to our next episode, where Tim and I will be exploring how domestic violence and coercive control happens in the first place. We'll explore the warning signs and what we can do about it.
0: I'm Tim watson Munro.
1: And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. And if you love this app, please follow us, give us a five star review, you can subscribe to the channel and feed, and recommend us to your friends. And you can also set up a bell notification which alerts you when a new app drops. What
0: was Brian Naylor's sign off? Until then, may all your news be good news.
1: (laughs) That's unlikely, but Yeah, yeah, you know.